This is John Silver. Welcome to yet another episode of The Work. My co-host Gina Killy and I come to you every week with another deep conversation about the inner workings of HR technology. Today, we're going to be talking with Charles Handler, who is, for my money, the leading um, analyst and practitioner of assessment magic in the in the world he's he's been thinking about the nature of assessment and the ins and outs of assessment for a very long time he and i spent a day once maybe 20 years ago um talking about it was a long time ago and he's been knocked he's been knocking it out of the park ever since making assessment intelligible for other people Thank you. I got a quick, uh, too. I, I, it's funny you mentioned that. So in that session, one thing about John that I have never left, never left my consciousness is I can't remember exactly who was even there, but you showed something on the screen and you were like, this is called a weblog. Uh, people are going to call it a blog and they're going to be everywhere. This is 20 some years ago, <laughs> like before anybody had even heard of this. Prescient. And I was John's like, Oh, part. that's pretty interesting. <laughs> and every time I hear the word blog, I think about, I think about you, John. <laughs> well, that's pretty cool. That's I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Not every so time, yourself. most of the time. <laughs> introduce yourself and, and tell us what you're up to these days. Yeah. So I have a, uh, doctorate in industrial organizational psychology, and I've been practicing in kind of the micro uh, specific area, esoteric area of uh, pre-employment assessments, basically an intersection of psychology, statistics, and now technology. And now we'll talk about today policy as well, most likely. Uh, And my company's done quite a bit of things. uh, Just to be brief, Uh, we build these tools, we validate these tools, we consult on uh, compliance of these tools, but we also look at the industry of assessments and how it's changed and how it's nested within, you know, the overall area of uh, HR technology and there's a lot of impact that, that that has on what goes on with what we do as specialists. So we do a lot of those things, and it's uh, it's ever-changing and really fun. So, so I'm looking at – I'm just going to – I'm going to jump way in, way fast. I am looking at an image that you sent me that is called Diversity Decay, How Bias Compounds the Hiring Funnel. This is a piece of genius. Oh, this is just, this This is great. So, so it goes – um, it's, so Charles's company is called Rocket Hire, and I bet you a million bucks that if you go to Rocket Hire, you can find a copy of this image. Somewhere um, in there, yeah. I think Somewhere. so, yeah. Um, for sure on my LinkedIn page, but we've definitely shared it a lot. So um, you should be able to find your way to it. And if not, I'll tell my marketing people that, that it needs to be right there on the front and center. There you go. But 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 this is a a very interesting picture of how bias accumulates over the course of the hiring decision. What makes you decide to, to, to look at it this way? Well, I mean, at my roots, I'm a statistician. And if you just think about statistical probability, right, uh, you fill the top of the hopper with uh, the right amount of, of uh, you know, diversity, then you can have much more chance of getting diversity at the bottom. There's a lot of things that happen along that journey. So when I honestly, as I take a second to think about it, 
it's because everybody pins bias on the damn assessment all the time. We're the poster child. The assessment's a problem. Assessments are, are unfair. Well, I wanted to say, look, it's not just us. Uh, we've actually been working on that problem since the 60s. Uh, where has everybody else been? Because you start looking at the overall situation. And to me, the most profound thing is before you even get to be a candidate, you've already are the are subject to the whims of bias and even who sees a job advertisement, right? In the sourcing part of it, in the recommendation engines that recruiters might first use to say thumbs up, thumbs down on these kind of candidates. Uh, where Where's the fairness in those subjective decisions? Well, the, the hiring process proper inherits all that. And then we got to deal with it. And then it only gets worse as you get down to the final hiring manager decision. So it's not the assessments to get thrown under the bus. Everybody needs to lock arms and work on this together. <laughs> I, I, you know, I agree with that, but I truly do. I think I think the entire process is rife with bias. But I, I do think, and, and I want your feedback on this, of course, I do think some assessments are um, generating additional bias. I'll give you an example. You know, if you ask someone like me to do a video game, I don't play video games. I, I mean, that that's like not even, you know, in my purview. So to sure. me, that immediately creates a barrier. And maybe that's intentional, by the way. Maybe I'm not the ideal candidate. Uh, and that's why you're, you're trying to flush me out. But but yeah, talk, talk me through that. Isn't some of it in the design of the assessment? I mean, it can be. That's a very tricky question. So first of all, I want to go on the record. I'm not saying that all assessments are bias-free by any means, not at all. But when they're used properly and when you, you know, evaluate the potential they have for bias or the statistical bias they have, and you, you understand how to implement them properly, um, you know, there's a, there's actually a way easier or better opportunity to control bias than with some of the AI type things, or even human, uh, decision-making, uh, you know, where subjectivity comes in. But, um, Gene, I think that video games, I mean, most, most assessments that are games, you're going to find mostly cognitive games. Um, those kind of games are just a nicer version of the patterns and sequence type questions um, that you get. And, you know, anybody should be able to do those. There, there might be a confound of, you know, computer skills, how, uh, I guess, how, I'm trying to find the right word, how familiar are you with using a computer navigating, you know, and let's assume mm -hmm. that you probably are, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that one kind of falls away. Uh, I, I think that when you get into games that are like arcade games or fun games for hiring, I could see that, uh, what you're saying for sure. Um, uh, and I just had this conversation with somebody earlier today. You should have a chance to practice. So in any assessment like that, you better have a few sessions where you can get acclimated to what you're doing. But, you know, those kind of games are really not ideal assessment vehicles to begin with. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, you're already behind the eight ball proverbially if you're if you're lobbing somebody a game where you're asking them to do things in outer space or, you know, be a Viking or whatever. You know? <laughs> with Yeah, yeah, totally, totally there with you. John, your thoughts. So, so I got a, another harder ball question for you. Right? I, I understand what you're saying about um, 
bias being a cumulative thing. Um, but but I find I find the assessment industry in general to be disingenuous on this topic. So so the question was. What are the standards of bias that assessment tests should be held to? Um, yeah. Right, right. Instead of mm -hmm. casting aspersions on the rest of the thing, of course, which is your expertise and and say, what what constitutes adequate in your mind? Yeah. So I, it's actually probably more layers to it than one might think. But you know, starting at the one everybody knows, it's your your four fifths rule. Uh, are there disproportionate number of people in any one particular group passing um, or failing, if you will. Uh, but that's not even close to enough, right? We have we have a set of, uh, of standards, a uniform guidelines on employee selection procedures that was created in 1978. So if you can believe that we're still uh, held to a standard from 1978 in this day and age, um, there's a lot of uh, talk about those standards needing to be revised, I think, and I'm, I don't want to get too tangential. I think the government's a little afraid to do that at this point because the, the just Gordian knot that we have here with, with all the different threads. But at the end of the day, I think it's really important that the actual material itself has been uh, evaluated for bias in language. So one of the reasons that people tend to postulate for differences in, uh, you know, different racial uh, groups scoring differently, consistently lower on uh, on cognitive things is the reading part of it. You know, the verbal part of it is is difficult because they're not able to. Whoever is reading this often isn't able to interpret it as true meaning. So you get you get that layer. Let's make sure that the the words and I've I've had some really eye opening experiences for one of our clients. We developed a a screening tool for sales and customer service. Uh, and we we had they created a diversity review board internally, and I recommend anybody doing assessments does this. And uh, these are people from their various hats in their organization, all related to diversity from a diverse, you know, uh, background. And they found words and language in these questions that we, as conscientious psychologists, had already, you know, it wasn't like, hey, I've got a Confederate flag on my truck, you know, I mean, it was like. Uh, these these are questions that we already filtered, um, and there were things that we never thought of, and so we were able to adjust the language to be more culturally sensitive. And so I think that's one thing. Th then it's the statistical procedures of just evaluating the impact of the test on uh, you know hiring decisions. Now, this this gets difficult because the test is not always the only hiring decision. So you know, how do you know? But there's there's data that you have to analyze and be responsible for. Uh, and then I believe it's really just uh, counseling your clients to continually look at that data year over year and see if it's changed. So many times people build these things, they do all the good stats work, and they just set the ship off, and they never come back and look at what's going on a year later, two years later, et cetera. Um, so there's more I can say, but I don't want to take up <laughs> the entire time on that question. So have you seen Texio? Uh, I have heard of it. I haven't really looked at it too much. The name is familiar to me. So, so what Textio does is a real-time analysis of the um, discriminatory impact of words in the flow of data. Oh, interesting. 
Very right. Cool. And and so and so so when I look at Textio and I think about what's the what's the likelihood that questions will change in a cycle less than an annual review, I go, well, of course they will, because language changes, right? And what constitutes sensitive language isn't a finite list of stuff. It is, you know, the moment George Floyd happened, a whole bunch of things became sensitive that weren't sensitive 100%. before. And 100%. That, means, that means that every hard coded piece of assessment question that might trip on that stuff was funky from that point till it was corrected and may still be in the funky right. place, right? Um, and, and so, so are you thinking about real-time data as a source of correction for bias in assessments? I would love it. I think real-time data can do a lot of things for assessments, but unfortunately, that's not really uh, something that happens in the industry, right? Um, I think that the product cycles... Uh, are very long and that uh, vendors don't, it's just impractical, I think, for them to come back and keep keep doing that. That could be a place for some kind of AI or something to potentially assist us humans. Um, again, I don't want to open up <laughs> a bag of uh, a, wor- a can of worms, excuse me, there, but, but um, you know, I don't think that's going to be happening, John, unfortunately, um, unless someone builds an automation in there and even then so at odds to that are the idea that they they train us in in graduate school that if you change even one molecule of an assessment question you move a piece of punctuation at the extreme but you substitute one word for another now in the age of pronouns let's imagine right you you substitute uh a they for a he or a she or something. You cannot, uh, in the purest sense, assume that that question is going to behave statistically as it did before. Um, the, the the practical nature of that is you probably can change some things and you're going to get basically the same result. But, um, you know, that's how we're trained. Don't go in and change anything about the assessment. If you do, you got to go back and rerun all the data. Um, so I think that's a mindset that uh, has been beat into beaten into a lot of folks who do what I do. So are, Sounds like exactly Minnesota culture. That, that. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just I'm just curious, then do the IO psychologists have a stranglehold over the assessment category? Do you do you have job security because of the way uh, all of this is designed? Yeah, well, I hope so, first of all. Uh, <laughs> stranglehold is not I don't know about the the kind of um, if that's a great term to have, I want us to all be uh, multidisciplinary, right? I think the I would actually flip it and go the other way is people who are doing AI assessments, air quotes or whatever that that are um, stealth assessment. I call it almost sometimes where there's no transparency at all. Those people are excluding IO psychologists a lot of the times. I, I would rather have it be balanced where you know. IO psychologists can help create or have an input into some of the uh, some of the more progressive things that are happening. And that is the case in a lot of places. Um, But when you look at pure data science and pure psychology, you know, that Venn diagram for effectiveness, we have to have that 
overlap because uh, you know, when you just do it completely by the numbers with no psychology in there, I believe you miss some of the uh, more subtle artistic, you know, aspects of things. And if you're just uh, pure psychology and, you know, not really relying on as much data, then uh, you're missing a piece of it as well. So it really requires both. Uh, and I have seen more and more of that. And if you look at even from an industry perspective, the consolidation in the assessment industry, you're finding a lot of people who are now plugging the knowledge of the psychologist into that bigger equation. Uh, you know, someone like, uh, um, uh, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on the name. Uh, dang it. Um, who just, who just got, uh, tradeify? Uh, a predictive, uh, like a recruitment process automation company. There's an example, you know, tra uh, paradox, uh, probably no psychology, even thinking about it in terms of what they do. And they've acquired, you know, Tradeify, who's a, a personality based uh, assessment vendor. So, you know, they're starting to graft on the psychological perspective into what they're doing. And I think that's a really, really good thing. Um, and I'd like yeah. to see more of that. Have you ever looked at Tradeify? I, I, I took a long look at Tradeify, uh, and I walked away thinking that it was something that you'd probably hate because what they did was not psychology. What they did was a bunch of statistics. I, I reference them as a psychology-based company. I think they do good stuff. Um, the jury's out a little bit on you know, how effective what they're doing is, um, but it has incredible intuitive appeal because it's like a three or four minute assessment with pictures. Um, and, you know, for me, I've always had a mantra of beware of assessments that um, take in very little and output a lot. Uh, right. So if, if you're and there's other ones where it's, you know, 40 questions and they give you a dossier that's, you know, the size of a small white pages from a medium sized town or something, you know, about a about an individual. So. I mean, it's just too much information that how can you get that off of such a little, a little bit of input? So, and uh, on top of that, there's a lot of good research that shows that candidates don't really buy into a very short assessment as much. If it's a two minute or a three minute assessment, they're going to say, well, how the hell are they going to learn enough about me to hire me in that two or three minutes? The sweet spot is actually around 20 minutes or so. After that, candidates start to get fatigued and they don't like the assessment anymore either. So the zone of, you know, 10 to 25, 30 minutes, um, that's where you want to be with an assessment. Uh, but again, think about paradox, pure AI screening and, and matching and all the other stuff they do. Um, and then at say, Hey, well, we can at least bring some psychologists to the table. These people understand how to measure human things. They, their methodology or ideas may not be, loved by every psychologist, but they are representing, I think, uh, some of the basic fundamental truths that are important uh, to be included, and therefore it's good for them to be at the table. So I'm going to go back to my question about the involvement of IO psychologists. I mean, are we seeing, is the evolution of assessments that we're, we're going to be in the self-driving car mode, where, where we put the assessments in the hands of the hiring manager or someone else in the talent acquisition workflow? Well, the self-driving car model to me is more that the assessments are transparent, as I said before, and no nobody's really attaching them. Candidates aren't sitting for them. They are going to be based on your, your interview 
you know, uh, voice inflection and the content of your, your verbal interviews. They might be based on your resume. They might be based on some other things that you're doing uh, throughout the process, right? And Or your, even your LinkedIn or your social profiles, God forbid. So there's, um, there's, there's always going to be those. I think that um, the replacement or automation of this thing um, it's not necessarily going to uh, be something where, again, I'm just thinking out loud here. Give me a second to process. So I wrote an article probably five or six years ago about when will we have self-driving assessments? And I did the car analogy at that point. And to John, okay. I was reading an article that. Yeah. Full went, disclosure. I didn't read that article. So okay. it, was a long, <laughs> that was a long time ago, but okay. you're thinking in the same mindset. And um yeah. And so, you know, I, I just think that, uh, that we're not going to be in a situation where these things are just functioning, you know, on their own, they need to be set up properly, uh, and they need to be administered properly and evaluated properly. And so just thinking that they're going to be some renegade, you know, assessments doing their own thing. I was just reading a article, John had written a little bit earlier, right before this call, just to just to make sure I'm dialed into his perspective. And, um, you know, he, he had a really good statement in there. Look, AI, machine learning, all that stuff, it's dumb. Um, it can only do what you tell it to do. It's not really going to be able to make good judgments about people just on its own. Uh, so the idea that it's a self-driving car that you just point it and it goes where, where it wants to go, I don't think you're going to get to your destination, <laughs> you know, in a good way, if you think about assessments being like that, I hope that was. Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, that's good. So let me let me take you. Let's just take that a little bit further. Um, I I think about Facebook and Google a lot, and effectively, what they do is not a vocational assessment, but but effectively, what they do is they assess me based on my interests, and they. Uh, motivate my behavior based on my interests. And so I imagine a generation of assessment coming along fairly quickly that uses behavioral signals from screen interfaces as the substrate for examination rather than questions and answers and tests yeah. because mm -hmm. the organizational psychologists at, at Google and Facebook have been making billions of dollars doing this already. So it's just a simple question of moving that into the um, uh, enterprise arena. Right. What do you think? Mm. Well, I do believe that's probably going to happen. I don't know how good that's going to be for anything, because if you huh. start thinking about all the all the issues with privacy bias, all that big knot of stuff, it's only magnified by what you were just talking about, John. But I, I think that the, that thinking that there's going to be something that stops that is uh is not a very uh, wise <laughs> thought, you know, um, because it's just too easy, right, to uh, for them to do. And, you know, I don't know how I think like the the ability to show that that's actually working effectively uh, when they're doing that for marketing, you know, and I've done it for a couple of businesses I have and we've we've all got some familiarity with it that, you know, you do paid AdWord placement, paid search, SEO, all those things. And you're looking to convert people. You get you get a metric. Uh, I'm going to try and steer people to 
to buying Coca-Cola. And then you could start seeing, you know, our sales going up or our sales in this area where we invested um, going up in this demographic because we're investing in messaging to that demographic and levering their behavior. With hiring, it's not quite as easy. You know, the uh, the there's so that that's going to make it harder. I fear that kind of thing until we're able to prove that it actually works. And then we can understand what's going on in that black box. And I don't think that we're really close to that. Let me tell you what I think, what I would love to see the future be. I don't know if it will be that or not. Um, Ever since my first days in graduate school where I felt really lost in my first class, especially I was like, why am I here? I don't understand any of this stuff. And then they, they assigned me to do a paper about work samples, which is, you know, I went into literature from the seventies all the way to the fifties. Um, and they used to do this a lot in factories, you know, um, you gotta, you will get a box of nuts and a board with some screw, you know, uh, screw things sticking out and you got to find the right size and thread it on there in the right amount of time. And maybe somebody will stand there and yell at you while you're doing it. Um, and you're evaluated that way. And, you know, these are miniature replicas of the job. It makes total sense to me. So work samples, simulations have been a very powerful tool. It's very hard to simulate some jobs. Um, so it's not as pervasive as you might think, but what I see in the future is really people doing, things that they would do on the job, distributed maybe even over time. So you're in a fictitious and, you know, I could even, uh, I hate to choke it on this, but I could even see the metaverse being possibility for this as much as I'm not getting suckered into the whole metaverse thing, but a virtual environment where you can do a job, maybe even over time, (laughs) interact with uh, coworkers and you're being evaluated on your business skills, on your uh, how you apply your personality traits behaviorally in the job, how how reliable you are. Um, and that data is coming in fast and hard. And hopefully at that point, we've got something to be able to interpret that in terms of competencies or whatnot. And I would just love to see that. I imagine, you know, and there's so many, it's fraught with prob- problems, what I'm talking about, but I can at least, you know, indulge my, uh, my dreaming here. I've got this phone and I'm basically doing something on my phone, talking, I'm texting, I'm solving problems, and all that data is being evaluated um, based on, you know, how I might do those same things on the job. You know, that that's what I'd like to see. So, so the stealth that you're talking about, but in a more structured paradigm that's related to the job, uh, predicting how people might do similar things that are valuable in the workplace. That's great. I sure am glad you took the time to sit here with us. We're, we're, we're nearing the end. And um, would you take a moment and let people know how to get a hold of you? Yeah, sure. Um, I think you just Google Rocket Hire or my name. And uh, there's a couple other Charles Handlers out there. But I, I probably the one that pops up the most just because of how much I'm putting information and content out there. I have my own podcast called Science for Hire that I've been doing for a couple of years. Um, and so you can Google that, find it. So the ways to find me are pretty much the same ways you find other people. Put their name in the Google box, <laughs> hit enter, and that's how you find me. I'm glad you're out there protecting us, Charles. I'm trying. I'm same, trying. But, same. But Thank back you. At, back at you, you know. 